As you're seated, uh, please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 23. And as we work through that passage, you'll see why Steve sang Spirit of the Age in that song as it helps us to really consider musically a big part of what we read in our passage today. So I encourage you, have your own Bible. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer. You can grab one when you come in. You can grab one right now. Um, it is a place to turn, take notes, just reflect as you look at the, as you look for, at the words yourself, even as I work through them um, up here. Uh, verse by verse, that's what we do. Verse by verse through the book of Matthew and to understand its message and its meaning. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, the, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in, a, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And be warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, with the word of our God. It stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be honoring in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I've heard that in judo or in jujitsu, those fighting techniques, self-defense techniques, is that the strategy is to use an attacker's momentum in your favor. And so when a lunge happens or a person attacks, the idea is maybe to sidestep or do something crafty. And then so that momentum can be used in your self-defense or some sort of advantage to yourself to protect yourself. Well, our passage today is one of those jujitsu moves of God where he turns the evil intentions of, of others to reveal his plan and then to reveal his power. By the time we get here in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has been born. Uh, the wise men have correctly identified him as the king of the Jews, as we saw in verse 2. And Herod wants to have him killed. But in the end, 
God turns this event to show the person and work of Jesus with greater clarity than ever before. The very thing that King Herod wanted to stop is the very thing he helps establish in his scheming and his plans. Now, one thing we want to think about as we look in this story is that this is not just Jesus' story. I mean, this is the story of God's people. This is the story of the church. This is a place where Jesus' story connects with the lives of every believer. That's because since Jesus came, uh, evil men and women have come after the church in their attempt to stop the advance of God's kingdom, to subvert the rule of God over this world. And even now, uh, Jesus has come, persecution continues. I, I read this week and looking at the sermon and researching that, that there are currently 360 million Christians who suffer um, high levels of persecution for their faith. You know, so these are high level where life and health and safety are regularly at risk. That's not to speak of people who could lose jobs or be marginalized on account of their faith, um, but people who suffer high levels of persecution. That's 360 million. That's a lot of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are 76 countries around the world where Christians experience high or extreme levels of persecution. Back in 1993, there were 40 of them, and then now there are 73 of them where they suffer um, extreme and high levels of persecution. And still, uh, just as we're going to see, Herod's uh, plan doesn't work, and so all persecution is doomed to ultimate failure, to ultimate failure. While oppressors do cause great death and destruction, they cause mayhem and chaos and great suffering we see a promise that God preserves his church in it, and he even grows his church through persecution. Um, the ancient church father, Tertullian, he said once that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we've seen throughout history that God has used that, driving people into missions, driving people into missions. And people say, you know, if, if people are giving their lives for this, there must be something to it. There must be something significant in it. We see accounts of this like the Apostle Paul as we read Philippians where he, see, he talks about his imprisonment and instead of his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, discouraging people from doing things, it actually fuels them to do it. We can look at places like China where uh, when the communists took, the communists took over in, in 1950, um, that 1951 I think, is that the missionaries were expelled and they despaired. What's going to happen with the Church of Christ in here? And then only to realize years later when it began to open up again that the martyrdom, which had been, um, you know, the blood that was spilled by so many over so many years had really fueled the growth of that church and it grew. It was enormous. That's the history of God's work in the world. It's a jiu-jitsu move. Like the church often grows even in the face of troubles. Now, a lot is said today about being on the right side of history, and people say that, that certain ideas in our world are inevitable, so you might as well start arguing about them. But if we look at what the true direction of history is, looking over the last 2,000 years, we see that the march of history has been to the spread of the gospel and the worship of Jesus Christ and the growth of his church. And as much as People, tyrants, leaders have tried to stop it. It doesn't work. It's the march of history, and it moves forward 
to the glory of Jesus' name. And that's why we know, as 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. How do we know our work matters? How do we know it makes a difference? It's because we know that Jesus Christ is building his church. He's saving people from their sins. He's turning people from sin and evil towards the truth and towards what's good. Jesus marches forward. He brings his church along with him. And even as many people come against him and his church, it perseveres. It continues. And what hope that gives to us. And so what we want to do is look in this passage, see what it says about the sovereignty of God, and see what it shows about the sovereignty of God even over his enemies. As we go back towards uh, the passages before um, verse 13, we see Herod, he wanted to know where Jesus is. That's because he wanted to destroy Jesus. He was, he was troubled by the arrival of this king of the Jews. If you look back at Matthew 2, verse 7, uh, we see Herod summoning the wise men secretly. You know, they had come to Jerusalem following the star to see where Jesus was. He gathered them to himself secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, because that's where Jesus was, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. Well, they... Um, he wants to destroy this child. Um, he's threatened by the news. He sees it as a direct threat to his rule. The Jews cannot have their own king, and so he's going to, to eliminate this child. Uh, but God protects Jesus, and God protects his plan in two different ways. First one we see in verse 12 is where he warns the wise men of what Herod's plot is. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Really shows us some things about the Magi. Three things about these Magi and their visit to Jesus. The first thing it shows us is that they were deeply moved by their encounter with Jesus. They know this is not an ordinary baby. They see that God is doing something wonderful. They're not going to let this evil king snuff the work of God out. They're, they're moved. They want to see that work continue. They're changed. And so they're not going to go back the same way that they went. Secondly, we see that they're not naive about the opposition that Jesus would experience. The wise men did not play into Herod's wicked plans. They're aware of his evil intentions. And so that's another reason they go another way. And that's important for us to think about. There are forces in this world that are hostile to Jesus Christ. And we cannot be naive to evil, to doubt its power, and to play into its way of thinking. There's no place for niceness in a place of evil and in hostility. There's a need of discernment. There's a need of courage and power. There is a need of kindness and love, yes. But it is something that we must not be naive about and to know that those forces exist. And we must, must pray that we're naive to this evil intention. The third thing we see about the wise men is they're responsive to the word of God. God told them what to do, and, and they're in line with the will and plans of God. They're not going to do anything against that will and plan, not purposefully and also not negligently. And their attentiveness, they do God's work. They don't do Herod's work. We need a similar kind of attentiveness in our own actions to respond to the word of God and his work immediately. So that's the first way he protects them, through the wise men. His warning to them and their responsiveness. Verse 13 shows us the second way. 
and that's through Joseph. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. All right, so an angel comes telling him that Herod plans to search for Jesus, plans to destroy him, and commands him to go to Egypt. It's not a, a time for heroic measures. It's not a time to be blind to the threat this means to his family. It is a time to escape. God's people throughout their whole history have, been, have experienced persecution, and Joseph needs to see what's coming and to respond appropriately. And as we see, um, especially down in verse 16, is that Herod becomes angry. It's a sign of a tyrant, of a, you know, somebody who manipulates, tries to get your side with them through smooth words, you know, really saying, oh, I want to go worship him too. And then meanwhile, you know, when things don't go their way, what happens? There's a switch into enra- becoming enraged, belittling. You know, that's what, that's what oppressive people do. They get enraged, they belittle when they don't get their way, when things don't go according to their plan. There's a flatterer when he wants something, but a violent killer when he doesn't. That's what verse 16 shows us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years and old under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So threatened that he murders every child, male child, under two years of old, just to be sure he takes care of the problem. We can only imagine the depth of grief that was in Bethlehem that day. Um, archaeologists say that Bethlehem was, at that time, probably a small village. Probably 300 to 1,000 people. I've heard that range is given, 300 to 1,000 people. And they, they guess there was probably about, probably around a dozen children, male children, age 12 and under at that time. You know, a dozen children killed because of one evil king, a dozen bereaved mothers and fathers from this murderous rampage. You can see how little regard that he has for these lives, these families, these people. It's about him. It's about his power, his kingdom, his future. It's not a trust in God's sovereignty. It's not a looking for God's kingdom. There's no hope of a Messiah. This is narcissistic rage born out of a life of fear and of the lust for power. And in one way, Herod was correct in this fear of Jesus. Jesus was coming to overturn a ruler. It wasn't just coming for Herod, though. He was coming to overturn the power of Satan in this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the god of this world. In the end, Herod was a petty pawn of Satan, unwillingly doing his work, unwittingly doing the work of Satan in this world as he executes his own influences. Now, in this account, we certainly see a political connection between infanticide and power. Ancient cultures, they generally devalued the lives of children. You can see it as we read our Bible. We read in Exodus chapter 1, how Pharaoh in Egypt killed uh, the, the children of Israel. We see it here as we read about Herod. We see it in the pagan nations and the sacrificing of their children before the altars of Baal. You can also see it in Rome, where infanticide was something which was, um, which was not rare. 
even abandoning children, just leaving them alone, exposed to the elements in order to die. They really working out the not only the spiritual leaders of these different places, but also through the philosophers, people like Plato, who says that you know that that a child doesn't really cease to or doesn't really exist until later in life, though he's accepted by his parents. Ultimately, it was the Christian faith who, which changed the way that people looked at children, and also women as well. And the work of the church continues in pro-life work today. It's because there is that connection that we see between infanticide and abortion. You know, the only difference is, is how long has that human being uh, been in existence? There's a recognition that life begins at conception. It's a special work of God that, that, that he does in the, in the um, development of a human life. If we let that, if we let that body grow undisturbed over time, we know that it is, um, you know, we're going to recognize it as a baby. It's a baby from the beginning. It's a baby throughout um, the course of its growth, and it is a baby when it comes out of the, the, out, out of the woman's womb. The only difference is just a matter of time. It's still a child, created in the image of God, bearing the rights of, and should have the rights of every human being. Now, why did Herod kill these children? Because they threatened his agenda. They threatened his plan. Isn't that what makes abortion so attractive? That a child threatens an agenda, threatens a plan. It's an inconvenience or a threat. It needs to be eliminated. There's a fear of failure if, they have, if, if a couple has that baby. So instead of keeping the baby, an abortion happens. They abort that child. The spirit of Herod is present all around us in our world today. And these days, when our elites push their agenda for abortion, you know, they couch it, though, in the terms of health care, don't they? And it makes it all the worse. Now, we should certainly care about health care for mothers and for their babies. We need to care about both. And we need to care about mothers who carry unplanned pregnancies and they carry them forward. That's why, as a church, we support Choices Women's Pregnancy Center, Imagine Life, um, and why they need our support in caring for abortion-minded women uh, even after they have their child. It also includes support for women who have chosen abortion and they regret that decision. And there's forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. One of the great ways to care for women after abortion is to show the path of eternal life in Jesus. Jesus came to forgive sins. Jesus came to make us new. We have guilt and shame. We bring those to Jesus. We find grace and we find forgiveness. We find new life. But the truth is that a culture that values lives of children and infants in the womb is also the one that values the life and the health of women. It can't be couched as women's care because it's destructive to life. We certainly cannot call abortion health care because it certainly does not care for the health of the baby in the womb. It kills the baby. And that's not health care. I mean, that is a brazen disregard of life. And any politician who would call abortion health care advocates for that disregard of life. There Politicians used to shy away from publicly talking about it as much as possible. 
There was some shame that was connected with it. It was kind of something which was silently in the back. But if, every day I check, and I don't know about you, but every day I check my mailbox, and every day I get a political ad from a wannabe political leader who tells me I should vote for them or the women in my house should vote for them because they support abortion. They use different terms, right? But it's abortion nonetheless. And what this tells me is they're willing to sacrifice the most valuable or the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable of our society to get a position of power. And if that is not the spirit of Herod alive today, I don't know what is. It is awful. It is sickening. So that's the spirit of Herod in even major political parties, actively recruiting votes through the keeping the legality of infanticide in the law. Herod did not kill the babies himself. He had his men do the work. And somehow our politicians are successful in recruiting millions of Americans to support this same work. It is awful and it is evil. And it's a system that as Christians we ought not to be co-opted into. We have a part in a political system. We have a chance to say no to politicians who want to do this. We have a chance to support women who are affected by this and fathers and babies who are affected by this. We don't fall into the spirit of our age, the spirit of Herod, which is all alive today. This comes out of Herod's desire to take Jesus down, right? To, to stop him at the cradle before, it, well, before he comes to the cross. But in the end, we see Herod's plan is frustrated. And that's the way of Joseph. That's the way of the church. Hearing from God, taking responsibility for life, and protecting it. We'll get to a little bit more to Joseph later. Uh, but, you know, we do see Herod's plans frustrated. It's frustrated by God. It's frustrated by the wise men. And it's finally frustrated by Joseph himself. Good and godly men, they will not go along with his plans. It's a reminder that pro-life ministry needs men involved with it. It's not just women's work. A lot of people suffered because of Herod's evil, but Jesus was saved. So recognition of one life is significant. In this case, it did change the world. That's Jesus' life being saved, changed our world. Reminds me of the end of Schindler's List. You know, that movie that tells the story of Oscar Schindler who built his business and brought Jews to work inside of that in order to rescue them from the, um, ho the uh, Holocaust, the, the Nazi Holocaust. There's a scene at the end of the movie. If you've seen it, you probably remember it. The Jews who, you know, the Allies have come in. There's liberation of um, Germany's been defeated. The Nazis have been defeated. And, you know, there's liberation there. And, and they, they come up to Oskar Schindler. And they say, Oskar, thank you. The Talmud says... Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. I like that line. Who saves one life saves the world entire. Schindler says, I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more. If I just, I could have gotten more. The Jewish man says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because if you look at them, you know, Schindler is undone. If I'd made more money, I, I threw away so much money, you have no idea if I just... The Jewish man says, there will be generations because of what you did. Schindler says, I didn't do enough. And then they say, the people that he rescued, they said, you did so much. I mean, it made a difference for those 
1,100 Jews. If you can do something that even helps one person, that will make all the difference. This passage shows the sovereignty of God over all things, something we should be encouraged in as we see the path of God throughout history. First of all, we see that God's plan is bigger than Herod's ability to stop it. He implements a plan to have this baby saved. Though people try to stop the church of Christ, it will advance. Secondly, in the end, we see this in verse 19, Herod dies, but Jesus lives. It's the pattern of history. God in his plan is untouched by the violence of men. Herod will be judged for his murderous rampage. So many have suffered, like these babies and like the parents. And they may not see justice in this life, but we know that God is just. And we know there is an accounting. Herod for himself wants to try to, he's, tr- he's trying to kill the one person who can save him. He's trying to kill the one person who can reconcile him to God. Jesus was a savior who'd give his life to take away sin, and, and Herod wants none of that. And so it's a warning to all the tyrants in our world, whether it's a, a tyrant over a nation or a tyrant over a home, that Christ wins. His plan will continue. There is a judgment that's to come. It's a warning to every persecutor that they may hurt the church, hurt the people of God, the body of Christ, but they will not destroy it. God's church will end up in glory and they will end up in hell. It's also an encouragement to us that while people in power may seem to hold all the cards to be so oppressive, God will accomplish his plans for his people. We're united to Christ, our victory is in him. And so here we see Herod, an actor who's frustrated, Herod, whether he knows it or not, though, is a pawn in a greater contest, and he is a pawn of Satan, doing Satan's work and in futility working against God. It's not a new story, and that's what Revelation chapter 2 says. That's our second point, the frustrated animosity of Satan. Satan has always been trying to destroy the people of God. We see it in every page of the Bible. Revelation 12 shows the nature of that conflict. It kind of pulls the curtains back on Satan's oppression to Jesus and the people of God. And as I was working on my sermon, I had so much that's in here that I said, you know what? I don't have time to cover this point this morning. So that's tonight. So if you want to hear the second point, Revelation chapter 12, come tonight. We're going to work through it. It's amazing to see what, as God pulls that curtain back and what he's done throughout history to see uh, what his victory looks like over Satan and all of his minions. So that's, that's tonight, Revelation 12. Um, if you can't come in person, watch the live stream. If you can't watch the live stream, we'll have it posted later in the week. You can watch it then. All right, so God's plan stops Herod, stops this animosity of Satan. It's his third point, his victory over evil. His victory over evil. Now, Matthew, as he writes this, he works to make a connection between Jesus and Israel. We see it especially in chapter 2, and then we're going to see it again in chapter 4. But it really makes a connection between Jesus and the nation of Israel itself. And so the nation of Israel was not just the birthplace of Jesus, but it foreshadowed what uh, the person that, Messiah, that, that this Messiah would be. Jesus not only fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, he not only fulfilled the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but he's really a fulfillment of the whole nation 
of Israel. Where Israel received the laws of God and broke it, Jesus fulfilled this law perfectly. Where Israel could only offer sacrifices, Jesus offered himself as that perfect, final sacrifice. Where Israel was an earthly kingdom in the, in, it was an earthly kingdom in the place of God that Jesus actually inaugurated the kingdom of God. So we see this in our past today. Jesus identifies with Israel. Like Israel, he was persecuted by a king. Remember back to Exodus chapter 1. Um, you know, we remember Israel being persecuted by Pharaoh. Murder of the babies in Israel. Jesus came under that same threat. And like Moses, he was rescued in the slaughter of the babies. Moses was singularly rescued from the slaughter of the Egyptian babies. He became a leader and a prophet of God's people. And in Matthew 2, what do we see? Jesus being singularly rescued from the slaughter at Bethlehem. Like the nation of Israel had to flee Egypt to avoid famine, we see that Jesus had to flee to Egypt as well. We see that in verse 15. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So in all these things, we see there are forces that wanted to eliminate the ancient kingdom of, of Israel. It's an important reminder that the places where God is working, that those are the places we're most likely to see demonic oppression. And that's why Matthew quotes Jeremiah 3.15. If you look at verses uh, Matthew 17 and Matthew 2, 17 and 18, you'll see he takes something from, Matthew, from the book of Jeremiah. And this is what it says, this was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in Jeremiah, the allusion is not back to the um, exodus and the death of the children there. It was to the Babylonian takeover when Babylon came in and they took Israel into captivity. How many children were slaughtered? How many children died during that event? It's such a tragic event. And, you know, it's just descriptive of the constant pressure, the constant threat, the constant suffering of God's people from the nations that are around them. It speaks of the heartbreak. It speaks of death and destruction. And now Jesus has come and the enemies of God still fight against this kingdom of God. We see it in Exodus. We see it in in Jeremiah, and we see it in Matthew chapter 2. Wherever Satan rears his head with opposing God's plan, God's people suffer. Israel faced it through the life of their nation, and they're facing it again under Herod. Now the Savior has come. There's a little bit of God grabs from the past, reminds them, these things you experienced in the past, which were signs that I was working and doing something, that's the same sort of sign that you have now. God is doing something new and sending Jesus into the world. It's because Emmanuel has come. God is with them. And he knows the suffering of his people. It's not a secret. It's not hidden from him. He enters into that suffering to be our Savior. And as the Bible tells us, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted. He was tried, but he did not sin. That's why he's the Savior we need. And so in all this, we see God's plans are greater than Herod's. God accomplishes his plans to bring a savior. How does he do it? I want to talk about a few things, a few ways that God defeats Satan's plan in this world. 
one thing that we see him doing is he uses a courageous father. He uses a courageous father. He calls on Joseph to protect his family, and Joseph rises to the cause. It wasn't a battle to win. It was a family to protect. And so Joseph took the word of God seriously. Joseph does what he needs to do to protect Jesus and protect Mary. And so here's Joseph, not not Mary. He's in the place of leadership and initiative, and he does what good men have always done. He protects. Verse 14, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, following the instructions of God to bring them in Egypt for protection. Remember, you know, how he took him into his life to begin with, taking him in by adoption, a response to God's command. He loves his child. He sees his duty under God, and he responds. He also acts with wisdom. If you look at verse 19, we see this, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. You know, he's hesitant to put his family in a dangerous place. And so he finds a safer place of Nazareth. You know, dads, what do you do in the care and protection of your children? I mean, it's really important. There's a need to stay engaged. There's a need of courage. There's a need of wisdom. It's because there are genuine threats to the well-being of children. And we need to take them seriously, protect them from those threats. They face threats online. There are temptations that come from school. They face temptations in the home and neighborhoods. Are, are you taking them seriously? And when they're little, you know, we can do what Joseph did and we can pick them up and move them somewhere else and get them out of harm's way, right? But as they get older, the most important thing we can do is to talk to them about the issues that they, that they face. They need our help in schooling, in, educating, in education, in navigating the internet, navigating social media and spiritual things. And decisions of life. Now, over time, what happens? Authority goes down, but influence has a chance to go up, especially as we develop a relationship with them. We engage them on life's issues. I, mean, I have an adult child, and I have absolutely no control over him, authority, but I still have influence. I have teens. I have some authority over. seems to be less and less all the time, but there is a growing influence. I, I have little kids, And I have lots of authority, and I don't have a lot of need to influence, at least at this point. I don't reason with them. But I do reason with my teens, or at least I try to. But there's a need to stay connected, a need to stay connected to build those relationships. We see God acting through this man, through his father, in the protection of his son. But we also see God overcoming evil with a humble plan. God's plans often accomplished in non-spectacular ways. And the last words of the passage show us that. End of verse 23 says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Scholars sometimes wrestle through, what does he mean by being a Nazarene? Is he saying he took that old Nazarite vow that Samson took, that he wouldn't cut his hair, drink calico, or those things? And no, it's a different word. And we don't see Jesus being brought up in that same way. What does it mean to be a Nazarene. The point that he's making 
is that Jesus did not come from an elite position, but a place from relative obscurity. No one thought that someone from Nazareth would do an important thing. In fact, you might, you might remember Philip introduced Jesus to Nathaniel. And Philip says this in John 1, 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So why did Nathanael say that? Because Nazareth was a backwoods, rural place. It wasn't like New York City. It wasn't like Washington, D.C. It wasn't like Paris or any place with a lot of that sophistication. It was a backwoods, rural place. No great person would come from there, right? Well, that's exactly what was promised about Jesus and his kingdom. Isaiah 53, verse 2 is a good example of it. For he, and this is a prophecy about Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. How unattractive was Jesus? He, not even his hometown was attractive. I mean, it's part of Jesus humbling himself. You know, including the poor, humble place that he was born and the poor, humble place that he was raised. He came from the glories of heaven with all this wonder out there to Bethlehem and backwoods Nazareth. This is not the way that the world looks to the elite and the powerful and ends up falling under their spell. Herod, he came from a palace. In fact, just miles away from the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem, he had his own palace. That's the place we'd expect a king to come from. The birth of Jesus shows how God can use and turn a humble stable into the throne room of a king. And he could be a great leader, even from the backcountry and outside of the mainstream. It would have been expected that a king would come from Jerusalem, that he'd come from the palace, or at least be raised there, but not Nazareth. Now, Herod himself, he had the pedigree, right? But in the end, what do we know about him? Because he hated God's people, and when he died, his name was connected with the most cruel activities in history. But here we have Jesus being born in this poor place of Nazareth. He would give his life dying on a cross. One would hardly uh, suggest that was a way of success. But he's been given the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The world likes to say that success comes from being of the elite and powerful, but Jesus' own life reminds us of the need of humility. How did he defeat sin and evil? Not by raising up an army to take down Herod. He defeated evil. He defeated evil by his death on the cross. Herod is condemned for his actions. Jesus was raised to life. And that shows another way that God overcame evil. Third way God overcame evil was in the resurrection of Jesus. Genesis 3:15. This is shortly after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. We see the fall. God speaks to Satan himself, the devil himself. And what does he say to him? He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And I'll put enmity between your offspring, Satan, and the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The message of this is that someday a child will be born, which would crush the serpent's head. Sure, the serpent might bite, he might hurt, the heel, Christ might die on a cross, but at the end, the devil himself 
would be defeated. There's a, you know, a lot of action movies when you watch them. You know, the bad guy often thinks that he's won. And so he enters in this long monologue and he ends up losing because he's taught for so long. It's just given long enough for the good guy to come in. If you see that movie, The Incredibles, you know, that cartoon one, they even, it's a whole part of the story. You know, the bad guys talk too long, and so that's why they end up getting in, in trouble. Well, I wonder if Herod thought that he had Jesus taken care of when these children were killed. You know, he never would have known his, until he dies and stands before God in judgment, that his plan failed. Satan must have thought he had Jesus taken care of as Christ died on the cross. Even the Son of Man there suffered for sin and death. But in the end, he's wrong. Jesus cried out, it is finished. Jesus defeated sin. His resurrection, he defeated death. This is the defeat of the devil. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 2, I want to just run through a passage there. I often want to encourage you to turn to certain passages because maybe you see something you want to underline or write about, circle. But Colossians chapter 2 really speaks of the defeat of the devil in just a wonderful way, powerful way. It shows what Jesus has done. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. He goes on to see, verse 13, the sinful estate we started in. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, right, that's our problem. We're in sin, we're separated from God, we're under his judgment, It goes on, verse 13, to say, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt which stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I mean, that's good news. We have this, it's like we have that list of ways we violated God's law. We've broken those commandments. She's done something she shouldn't do. You know, he's broken God's command there. It's a list. And we know those things. We know those things we feel guilty about, the things we shouldn't have done, the way we hurt other people, we offended God. But look what it says. It canceled that record of debt with all its legal demands, right? All the demands of judgment, all the demands of punishment, what Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, was to forgive us and to say, this has been paid in full. And it was done by being nailed to the cross, as verse 14 says. And this is what I love in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I mean, that's Satan. I mean, that's the demonic forces. That's the, that's the work of the accuser who would accuse you and say, you know, God can't accept you. Look at the awful things that you've done. How would God ever bring you into his family? How would God ever allow you into heaven? And Jesus says, no, I canceled that record of debt. I took that away. It's been nailed to that cross. And so Satan, you're the wrong one. You should be ashamed. There's nothing to bring an accusation against my people. They're the ones who've been given life. I've defeated you in the cross. The basis of every accusation of the devil has been removed in the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. The fourth thing I want to see as we look for God's defeat over sin and evil is to see the, defeat, the way he does it through the church. Through the church. Turn to Romans, Romans chapter 16. Pastor Sam alluded to this earlier. Pastor uh, Romans 16, 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So you see where it says that, verse 20, he will crush Satan under your feet. What an allusion back to Genesis 3.15. Someday, right, right the, the head of the serpent is being crushed by the seed of the woman. And here we see, as we are united to Christ by faith, we are the ones who are workers in crushing Satan and his work under our feet. How will God build his kingdom in the world? And how will he use you? He does it by your, your persevering witness. As you persevere over evil, as you persevere through suffering, as you continue your testimony in Christ, as you, as you continue in love and you continue in good works, wherever it is that God calls you, you crush the head of, this, of, of Satan. As you share your faith, as you go on mission trips, as you send missionaries around the world, that's part of the great conquest of Satan. How exciting it is as we're united to Christ by faith, he's made us part of that work. So what do we do? Well, first of all, if there's anyone here who's listening, who is opposed to Christ, you need to stop. You will not win. All your efforts to overturn his rule in your life will only leave you frustrated, angry, bitter, and separated from God. The only way to peace is to accept him as your Lord and Savior. One of the Psalms is really good here. Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two. And it really speaks an important message to those of us who would say, I want to rule over my life. I will not let Christ rule over me. It has an important message. Psalm chapter two says this, why do the nations rage? Why does Herod rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why does Herod plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But it's not just rulers. It's any person who'd set up themselves as king over their own lives instead of surrendering their lives to King Jesus. Verse 4, all this animosity, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? He's established Christ. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Where is history going? We see it is growing that the nations will be the heritage of Christ. He's building his church. So verse 10, what do we do? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Saying to you who be ruler over your own life rather than letting Christ rule over you. What's his word? Serve the Lord with fear, verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins. He came and he died on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. And by asking him to forgive us, to, to forgive you of your sins, by asking him to make you new, to walk in him, he, he will do that. He'll forgive your sins. He'll restore you. He'll help you walk in newness of life. That's the good news of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus. But what about us as a church? 
This is a place, New Life in Christ Church is a place to be for those who want to escape evil, escape the chaos of the world. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, the Bible says. The righteous run into it and they are safe. I want to see God in his will, God in his purposes declared and set forth here. Now the devil himself, he comes to kill and destroy and create chaos. But the church is a place of refuge and hope. And that's why what we do is so important. That's why the truth is important, to be grounded in the truth and proclaim the truth. It's why unity is so important around that truth, a place of refuge for God's people to come in and to find hope, strength, and to be sent out in the world for the mission that's before us. The devil kills and destroys. As we hold out Jesus Christ to the world, we provide the opportunity to know the victory of God. And finally, how else do we apply this? As we pray for the persecuted church. The millions of believers, the, the 76 nations and others that suffer under the persecution of the church. We want to pray for them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over history. You are sovereign in accomplishing your purposes. You will establish your kingdom, your kingdom of righteousness, of love, of peace, and of joy. Father, your enemies, they fight that plan. And God, we feel that, that, that tension. But we know we can trust you, whatever comes against us, because you have won over our hearts. You've won over our hearts in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. You've, you've won over our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. He is your victory over sin. He is our victory over sin. We are more than conquerors in him. And we see your kingdom growing. By faith, Father, we kiss the Son. We know your forgiveness and love. We rejoice as you bring us into your kingdom as we know our salvation. And Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, those who even today have fear and they're suffering, discouraged. Father, would you give hope would you give life? Would you help them to know that you are near them? Father, would you give them courage to stand up under the difficulties they face? We ask you, God, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.